You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com, and you can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer where you can get access to exclusive B-roll episodes, TV and book reviews, movie reaction recordings, commentary tracks, Patreon specials, Patreon potpourries, early access to Patreon or to podcast episodes, a whole bunch of stuff. And all of that goes toward paying the fees to keep my my hobby, <laughs> my, the podcasts all running and everything, and is greatly appreciated. So if you want a ton of uh, bonus content, um, Check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Uh, today on the show, I'm going to be, first of all, wishing you guys a happy new year because we are now in 2023. Um, happy new year, everyone. I'm a little bit late getting this episode uh, posted. I really wanted to uh, do as much of a week-to-week release schedule as I could uh, right from the jump, but uh, life has gotten in the way and everything, so I'm back at it, and I am, I'm very excited because uh, here in a few weeks, or here in a short amount of time, I will be completing season three of The Twilight Zone, which is wild because I started this podcast, I think, in like, it was 2015, and now I'm at the end of the third season. It's it's wild. So I'll have more stuff um, later on, um, later in the, in the show and everything, uh, or later in the, you know, uh, release of episodes and everything to commemorate the end of, this, of the third season. But for now, Today, I'm going to be discussing uh, Young Man's Fancy, Fancy, which is the 34th episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on May 11th, 1962, and I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater's season two premiere, Signals from the Heart. But before I get into all of that, I do have some news from the world of fiction and science, which is my segment where I talk about things that I've watched and consumed in the science fiction realm um, in between recording episodes. And I do want to say just up front, because I'm neurotic about this kind of thing, but I'm using my one of my goals for 2023. Since I have three podcasts, um, I have three main microphones that I usually cycle through and everything. So I think like monthly, I'm going to cycle through the three microphones. So information's in the show notes. But January is for anthology is the pod mic. So Anyway, from the world of fiction and science, it's the section where I talk about the, um, you know, I, I talk about stuff that I've watched and, and everything. And um, I will talk briefly about seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey in the movie theater just this previous Tuesday, the 10th of January. Um I did a whole Patreon exclusive recording that I posted. It's about a like 43 minute recording, some of which is actually about seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey. Other stuff is just update on personal stuff and uh, just kind of, you know, uh, getting in the groove of recording while I was working from home. But anyway, check that out, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. But it's interesting. 2001 A Space Odyssey is, is incredible. And here in Indianapolis, they are... 
at Keystone Art Theater um, on the north side of Indy, where I live nearby. Um, they do retro replay screenings every Tuesday. They have monthly themes and everything. And, um, and so, yeah, so they have monthly themes. And this month in January was, uh, is, uh, Kubrick. So they did a bunch of, they've done a bunch of screenings. This week was 2001 A Space Odyssey. I went and saw it. I was having a bad day, bad week. And, um, and I was so on the fence about seeing it in the theater because I've seen it in the theater like five or six times already. I just, but I can't pass up an opportunity because it is one of my favorite movies of all time. And every time I see it, it's just, it's, I'm gobsmacked by it. It's, it's incredible. It's genius. It's brilliant. So I, I toughed it out. I went and saw it and I just, I love that movie so much. And it was like, I've rewatched the movie several times over the last several years. And since 2013, every time I have seen this movie has been in a movie theater just by happenstance. So it's just nice to have that kind of, um, have that kind of, um, I don't know that, that pattern come out and, and continue that streak really. And what's interesting is that, <laughs> uh, not only that, like I, I figured I might do like a Patreon commentary track down the road, um, to, to kind of commemorate it or to talk about it in more detail, the Patreon uh, level that you can get commentary tracks on is at the $5 level. I have, I have a tons of tons of commentary tracks, including one for Ex Machina, which I really love that movie. And also one for Sunshine, which I really love that movie as well. But anyway, um, the, <laughs> like I'm planning on like maybe doing a, a commentary track for 2001. And as luck would have it, it was like just announced, I think today, that at the uh, Historic Artcraft Theater in Franklin, Indiana, they're going to be showing 2001 A Space Odyssey on March 31st and April 1st. Um, so I might go down to Franklin and see 2001 A Space Odyssey again in the theater um, in a very short span of time from my last viewing of it. Um, I might, I might make the, I might make the trip. We'll see. But, um, it's worth noting that that is going to be screened in on 35 millimeter film, like on, like on a 35 millimeter print. Um, which is interesting because I talked about on Patreon, how I have watched 2001, a space odyssey in a variety of different formats and everything. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen it on a 35 millimeter print. I've seen a 70 millimeter print and I've seen the 70 millimeter print of uh, Christopher Nolan's unrestored version of it. And I've seen a 4K transfer of it. Like that's what it was on um, at Keystone Art. I've seen just a regular digital uh, like Blu-ray projection of it. Um, I've seen it in a variety of different ways, but I don't believe I've ever seen it on 35 millimeter. So I want to do that at the art craft. And then eventually I'll do a commentary track as well. Um, but anyway, so that's exciting. It's, it's incredible. Um, check out Patreon. If you, uh, want to hear more of my rambling about seeing it in the theater again, um, but elsewhere in the world of fiction and science is, uh, this next part, part, part is actually very much relevant to this uh, podcast because as you guys all know, it's the new year and new year means twilight zone marathon and, um, both sci-fi and decades network, I think both did a, uh, both did marathons of the twilight zone on new year's Eve through to like January 2nd. And this was really interesting and special to me because 
since since this podcast is about a person going through the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer, I have never participated in the Twilight Zone Marathon, ever. Like, it's always been something that I've just seen people tweet about and I've been excited about. Like, I've been very much excited about people, excited for people to do that. Um, But I've never participated in, in it, except for now. And I am so happy because I was able to participate as much as I could in the Twilight Zone Marathon. Um, I was tweeting throughout it. I had scheduled a bunch of tweets. Um, This is going to be ridiculous, but also it was a ridiculously long marathon. But I had scheduled out, I think, a grand total of 100 tweets throughout the like two, two and a half, three days that the marathon was running. Basically, I looked at the schedule and any time an episode that I've covered had come on or or was scheduled to come on, I scheduled out a tweet with a link to the episode, of course, because I'm a shameless self-promoter. If you're here from the Twilight Zone Marathon, thank you for checking out the show and I hope you're enjoying it. But um, but uh, I, I tweeted out thoughts on the episode and everything. And then from there, I went and... I, when I was watching it, when I was actually watching the Twilight Zone Marathon, I was tweeting along. I was sharing my thoughts on the episode. I was tweeting with other people. Um, it was a freaking blast, you guys. It was awesome. I loved it. And I'm like, I am all in. Like, this is going to be a yearly tradition for me forever. Um, I, it, like, it was so worth the wait and everything. But no, it was, it was, and it was, but it was also just so satisfying to me because a like I said it was the first time I ever did anything with the Twilight Zone marathon but also it just really it really solidified my thoughts on uh the fandom of the Twilight Zone and people who have like the level of respect and admiration for the work of Rod Serling and everything and it's like just the reverence that I felt um, when reading tweets and and participating in tweets and everything was just really nice. It was a very nice experience. Um, A few highlights about it. Um, There is, there, there was obviously a, uh, a run of the 2019 Twilight Zone episodes Um, during the marathon. They showed three episodes. They showed meet in the middle, the wonderkind. And what was the third one? Um, uh, the third episode was, I don't, I honestly don't remember what the third episode was. I'm so sorry, but they showed three episodes from Jordan Peele and Monkey Paw Productions, 20, uh, 2019 Twilight Zone, uh, which I recorded reviews of for every episode as it aired and everything. Uh, so obviously check that out if you haven't already, but it was really unique and interesting because I know that there was a lot of conversation around, the fact that it was that they were that they were showing the tw- 2019 episodes and not only that but they showed them at like prime time on new year's day like it, like 8 to 10 p.m. on new year's day which is like premium time slot and it that's kind of confusing <laughs> um and it was confusing but it makes a lot more sense because during that run throughout the marathon, they showed commercials for uh, the 2019 Twilight Zone episodes that are going to be airing on Wednesdays, each Wednesday night on Sci-Fi. Um, so that's why they were, that's why they placed them in in the block of the marathon. It was because their Sci-Fi is showing the, that series on Sci-Fi on Wednesdays, so they were promoting that uh, that time slot. 
Um, the other thing to note about it is that they actually showed <laughs> a couple of things to note about it really is that they showed the black and white versions of the episodes, which I thought was a very good, very, very nice choice of them to do. Um, but what I found really interesting about that is that, um, in doing that, so, so, so if you, if you guys didn't follow along with, uh, with the Twilight Zone uh, revival when it was on CBS All Access, which is now Paramount Plus. Um, after the first season aired, they aired or they they promoted um, black and white versions of those episodes. And then when season two complete, uh, completed, I think they, they did the same thing for season two. They had on CBS All Access, they had the black and white versions. Um, then in like 2021 or 2020, um, CBS All Access became Paramount Plus. Uh, so the 2019 Twilight Zone episodes are on Paramount Plus, but what's interesting is that they're not the 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 black and white versions are no longer available on streaming. Like you cannot see the black and white versions of this show on Paramount Plus. Um, I know that they're available on the season one Blu-ray, but I don't know if they're available in the season two Blu-ray because the season two Blu-ray is just. Like they just dumped it. They basically just dumped the show on Blu-ray because they weren't making, they weren't going to make anymore. So I don't think if there are any special features on there, I would be surprised. And if there are the black and white versions on the season two uh, Blu-ray, I would be absolutely shocked. But it's interesting that during the marathon, they did show the black and white versions. So that's interesting. And then the final thing that I thought was, um, <laughs> so, uh, Oh, wow. Um, oh yeah. Okay. I, I was just thinking, um, I, I was just looking at my notes and got very confused. But the other thing that's interesting about that is that they showed, like they didn't censor it. And I thought that was interesting. And, and I'll preface this by saying that I haven't watched like terrestrial television in a very long time. I don't have cable or anything. In fact, I had to borrow a login to get uh, a spectrum login to, to watch sci-fi for the marathon and everything. But what I found interesting was that they, that the, the F bombs in that episode, in the episodes that they aired of the 2019 twilight zone reboot, um, were uncensored. And I was so surprised by that because I thought that they would bleep it. Um, in back in my day, as I tweeted it, um, I, I thought that, you know, basic cable was allowed like maybe one F bomb per like season of television or something. Um, but no, they had like a run of profanity in the episodes, which was a big point of contention for a lot of people. Um, and I grew to kind of dislike it as well, but that's not what I'm saying here. But anyway, it's just interesting that nowadays, apparently they can, they can really just go for it, um, on, on basic cable. Maybe, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, um, the, uh, the other thing the other thing to note about the the marathon and everything is that uh, a couple of just a couple of just kind of uh, straggled thoughts straggled I don't know um, a couple of a couple of thoughts that I'm going to kind of work out here is that um, I had a <laughs> like um, on what was it on one of the days of the marathon I. I wanted to watch it, but I, I know that there was like a run of episodes where I hadn't seen it, like a whole block of episodes from like season four episodes and season five episodes that were airing for like two or three hours at a time. So what I did 
was I uh, threw together a hard drive filled with all the episodes that I have watched, and I just watched those on in in a random order. And in fact, what I did, this is so ridiculous. One of the days of the marathon, I believe I was working from home on Tuesday. Um, yeah, because I think Tuesday night or no, 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 I think Monday night. No, no, no. I think it was Tuesday night was the last night of the marathon. It ended at 3 a.m. on Wednesday, I think. I don't know. But anyway, um, there was a day where I think I was working from home while the marathon was playing and I was working from home. I had the marathon playing whenever it switched over to an episode that I hadn't seen. I would switch the basically what I had was I had my HDMI input. Uh, I had my HDMI uh, to my, um, oh God, what is it? my, my Roku, which I would, which is what I was using for the marathon. And then I had my other HDMI input hooked up to my laptop, which had my hard drive that was playing the random order of episodes that I have seen on repeat. So basically when an episode on the official marathon aired that I hadn't seen yet, I would switch the input on my TV to the laptop input and I would watch whatever was playing on that hard drive at that given time for that stretch of time on my TV. So Anyway, that was my little like life hack for uh, someone who hasn't seen every episode but still wanted to do a marathon of The Twilight Zone. Um, and then the other thing was that, uh, <laughs> this is kind of rough. Um, it's just, it's, this is awkward because I have it in my notes, but, um, I took it, I, I took, uh, basically uh, during the marathon when, when they were about to show, where is everybody? Um, my girlfriend who, and this is why I'm laughing and everything is she's not my girlfriend anymore because <laughs> we broke up last week, but we, uh, she had to go get her car, get an oil change. Um, so she went to Penske and I went with her and like, we just like, we shared, um, uh, earbuds and we're watching the twilight zone on her phone on the marathon and everything. And then we got to watch where is everybody? Um, maybe that's why she broke up with me. I'm not sure. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally joking. <laughs> uh, anyway. So yeah, so that's another, that that's a reason why I've been delayed on releasing an episode is because I've been, uh, kind of, you know, grieving the relationship, which is a bummer, but I'm okay. We're okay. Everyone's okay. Um, so couple other thoughts, and then I'll get into the actual episode, because this is running really long. <laughs> but a couple other thoughts is that while watching the marathon, I really wished that there were intros to like blocks of episodes. Um, I, I really wish that there was something like an actual hosted marathon, like someone saying like, oh, you know, giving giving like an introduction to it and, and then showing the block of episodes, kind of like how... Um, what's his face on shutter does it the joe bob jim bob whatever it is um the what is his name I, who cares um but anyway like i joe bob briggs i think but anyway um something like that for the twilight zone marathons would be really cool and then finally my other th my other thought and then i'll get into the episode is that i really really wish that paramount plus paramount plus has every episode of the twilight zone of the original series and I, it would be so interesting if they would compete with the, with the marathons on, uh, on sci-fi and do like, they would maybe have their own marathon or implement a marathon feature where you can just, just click play and have it be a random order and everything. And really all streaming services should do that, but 
who knows? It it probably will never happen. But anyway, I, it's just interesting that they didn't, uh, that they haven't implemented anything. Maybe no one at Paramount Plus is very, uh, maybe no one at Paramount Plus really cares about the Twilight Zone marathon or isn't aware of it, but I don't know. But anyway, I really enjoyed the Twilight Zone Marathon, and I hope you guys did too, and Happy New Year and everything, of course. Um, so, now that I have rambled on for like 20, 20 minutes, let me go into my episode, my review of Young Man's Fancy, and before I get into that episode and everything, I'm going to share what I knew about the episode before I saw it for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Um, I had no idea. Based solely on the title, I wondered if it was a story about aging and, uh, and maybe it was like another riff on something like kick the can. Um, and then I had the other thought that maybe it's about a May, December romance about an older woman trying to keep up with a younger man, something like that. And then my final thought before I watched the episode was, or, you know, maybe it's about a man who hasn't grown up and I'm going to count that as somewhat of a win because that's kind of kind of what it is, really. So um, now I'm going to go ahead and read the full plot summary courtesy of Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. So at this point, I'm going to be spoiling the entirety of Young Man's Fancy. So if you haven't seen it, go watch it, come back and listen to the episode. But you have been warned, I'm going to be spoiling Young Man's Fancy. So... Here's the plot summary, courtesy of Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. Virginia Lane waited 12 years to marry Alex Walker, a bachelor by habit and lifestyle who, until the age of 34, was unable to sever the apron strings bonded with his mother. One year after the old woman's death, the lovebirds are married and Virginia longs to establish their own home, not the late mother's. Shortly before their departure for a honeymoon, Virginia discovers the house slowly transforming into what it once was. Realizing the dead woman is attempting to convince Alex to remain in the past, Virginia observes the radio, turning on by itself, playing tunes from yesteryear. She ultimately meets the old woman face-to-face, promising her love for Alex is stronger, but the old woman complains that the transformation in the ha- or explains that the transformation in the house is none of it is, is none of her doing. It is Alex who longs for the past. Before leaving the house, Virginia witnesses the transformation of her husband into a youth who orders her to go away. Uh, Young Man's Fancy stars uh, Phyllis Thaxter as Virginia Walker. Uh, This was her only episode of The Twilight Zone and the only time she worked on anything associated with Rod Serling, or anything that Rod Serling was credited on as well. Uh, She did have a pretty notable credit in 1978's Superman film. She, uh, She portrayed Martha Kent. And co-starring as Alex Walker is Alex Nickel, and this was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, also his only time working with Serling, and he did appear in one episode of The Outer Limits in 1964, that episode was Moonstone, and uh, let's see, also starring in this episode or featured in this episode is Wallace Rooney as Mr. Wilkinson, the real estate agent guy. Uh, this is his second of three Twilight Zone appearances. We previously saw him in the Rip Van Winkle caper. And next we'll see from him is in season four's In His Image. And he also appeared in the film The Exorcist as well. 
which has nothing to do with Sterling, but it's just a notable credit. And let's see. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then also uh, appearing in this episode is Helen Brown as Henrietta Walker. This was her, her only episode of The Twilight Zone, only time working with Sterling. However, she did uh, have some notable credits, including Shane. She appeared in the movie Shane. And she had an uncredited role in the John Frankenheimer movie Seconds. And rounding out the cast as Alex Walker, age 10, is Ricky Kelman. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, only time working with Serling, and he eventually uh, became a, uh, a lawyer in California in 1977. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, prominent citizens. Yeah, so uh, in- interesting. I just read in, uh, on IMDb that he and his wife, Patricia Ann McCourt, have been prominent citizens for many years in Camarillo, California, USA. Um and I think I think I saw like in the trivia for him that I, he and his wife like have like a Porsche and are in like a Porsche owner's club or something. I don't know. But anyway, um, I thought that was kind of funny and an interesting detail. Um, writer for this episode was Richard Matheson. This is his 10th out of 16 Twilight Zone episodes. His previous episode that we saw was Little Girl Lost. And next we'll see from him is in season four's Mute. And rounding out the talent for this episode is director John Brom. This is his ninth of 12 Twilight Zone episodes. We previously saw saw his work and him in the episode Person and Persons Unknown. And next we'll see from him is season four's The New Exhibit. So now with the talent rundown, let me go ahead and go into my thoughts on this very interesting episode. Young Man's Fancy, here we go. My thoughts as a first-time viewer. So the episode begins with a with a shot of a house from this from street level like outside and it's introduced to us by Serling immediately as the house of the late Henrietta Walker and we then see a picture of her as she appeared as as Serling says as she appeared 25 years ago and right from the outset he's introducing everything immediately like we're getting his opening narration right from the jump which I'll play here in a moment but it's really interesting because it is a pretty lengthy opening narration and it is very much filled with exposition and um, a lot, a lot of information. And I came away from it immediately thinking like, okay, so is this about an estate sale or something? Um, but it became clear, obviously, that it's no, it's just showing how the house has been maintained and... Um, I I got the I got the impression that it was going to be about an episode about a house that belongs almost entirely in the past and a house that has ceased to notice the passage of time as Serling I think says it in the uh, opening narration. Um, but I was very curious about that. But then he also introduces us to Alex Walker, Henrietta's son. Um, he's her sole heir. And he, uh, Serling says that he was just married 20 minutes ago. Uh, he was a perennial bachelor. Now they're, now he's married. They're about to go, uh, pack up and make final arrangements for the house and then go on their honeymoon. Um, and that's what leads us into this episode. And it's, like I said, it's a long intro and I'm going to go ahead and play it now. And then I'll talk about the episode. So here we go. Rod Serling's opening narration for young man's fancy. You're looking at the house of the late Mrs. Henrietta Walker. This is Mrs. Walker herself, as she appeared 25 years ago. And this, except for isolated objects, is the living room of Mrs. Walker's house. 
as it appeared in that same year. The other rooms upstairs and down are much the same. The time, however, is not 25 years ago, but now. The house of the late Mrs. Henrietta Walker is, you see, a house which belongs almost entirely to the past. A house which, like Mrs. Walker's clock here, has ceased to recognize the passage of time. Only one element is missing now, one remaining item in the estate of the late Mrs. Walker. Her son, Alex, 34 years of age and up till 20 minutes ago, the so-called perennial bachelor. With him is his bride, the former Miss Virginia Lane. They're returning from the city hall in order to get Mr. Walker's clothes packed, make final arrangements for the sale of the house, lock it up and depart on their honeymoon. Not a complicated set of tasks, it would appear, and yet the newlywed Mrs. Walker is about to discover that the old adage, you can't go home again, has little meaning in the Twilight Zone. So again, this is a very lengthy introduction, and it's very, I don't know, there's something to it that feels, um, if, if it wasn't, if it wasn't Serling delivering the dialogue and delivering this narration, it wouldn't, it would be, it would almost lose me, (laughs) but there's this certain level of tenderness to the timber of his voice that kind of makes it a little bit weirdly soothing in a, in a sense. Um, so it kind of seems a little bit, um, kind of dependent on Serling's performance there for lack of a better word. But, um, the reason mostly that it feels long is because it's just a ton of exposition and it's pretty surprising because even though it is a ton of exposition, it's honestly not that much information. Um, basically a woman, has passed away. Her house is frozen in time by the way of decorations and everything. And her son and his new bride are home to settle the estate before their honeymoon. And there are hints of something off or strange, um, that's going to, that's going to happen, uh, throughout it. That's basically all the information that's contained in this very lengthy opening narration. And even then, the hints of something strange or peculiar are a l- almost a little too subtle because it's overshadowed by all of the exposition <laughs> uh, that is that is doing a lot of heavy lifting in this opening narration. So it's kind of interesting, but it does put us into the into the frame of mind to figure out what is going on or try to figure out what's going on because this episode actually has a really effective twist and surprise at the end um, that I wasn't expecting, though I did kind of expect it, which I'll you'll understand <laughs> as I get further into the episode. But um, right from the outset at this point, I was wondering if it was a haunting story. I was wondering if Mrs. Walker was going to haunt or possess the new Mrs. Walker and there would be some kind of power struggle there. Um, maybe the spirit of Henrietta was going to be jealous of, of, uh, Virginia being the new, the new Mrs. Walker. Um, and I really like that that was my immediate thought. Um, because I didn't imagine that it would play out as 
Alex being, for lack of a better word, the culprit of the of the episode. Um, so I, I just found that to be really interesting that that's where my mind went. Um, so we're introduced after the after the break. We're introduced to Alex and Virginia. They're clearly in love. They uh, like he opens the door for her and they kiss in the house and they're very much very much newlywed. And Virginia then tells Alex um, right from the outset, just down to business, saying like, "Hey, you need to call Mr. Wilkinson uh, so that we can get the paper signed, so we can sell the house and get out of here." And it was interesting because uh, this is going to be this is going to be kind of tricky for me to for me <laughs> to talk through because I have a lot of my notes are my initial thoughts and then I've backed them up. So which is usually how I do it anyway. But anyway, I found it interesting on that first watch that Alex forgot to call Mr. Wilkinson. And I thought it was interesting because it's a sign of hesitation to sell the house and officially say goodbye to his mother. Um, but I didn't pick that up on my first viewing at all, of course. I just thought like, oh, it's interesting that he forgot to call Mr. Wilkinson. And part of it was, part of the reason why I just thought it was interesting on that first viewing was that I feel like on the first viewing of this episode, when you're going through it and you're thinking it through, you're watching it for that first time, at least in my experience, my thought was that, okay, this man who has just married a woman and is is now a newlywed man, uh, he is still grieving the loss of his wife, or not wife, Jesus, uh, his mother. And so he's grieving his mother. And so throughout the majority of this episode, until a certain point in the episode, I was under the, I was completely under the impression that, oh, she must have just died. Like this must have been like within the last six weeks, uh, his mother must have died. So throughout the beginning parts of this episode, uh, throughout like the first act and a half of the episode, I was working under the assumption that he was just in a profound state of grief. But that's not the case necessarily because we find out later that it's been a year. Um, so I found that to be really interesting on repeat viewings because because it becomes kind of clear that his his absent-mindedness, his his aloofness, his reluctance is feels more when you when you watch it through the lens of someone who knows that, you know, he's been kind of putting it off for a year it comes across as calculated or just really representative of him not wanting to let go of the past, which is ultimately, ultimately the downfall of the entire episode or the downfall of the character, I guess. Although I guess he gets what he wants. I guess Virginia's downfall, although she got out of a very messy, uh, a very, like there was no winning in that relationship, I don't think. Um, but the power struggle in this episode is just really fascinating to me. So, I come away from it on repeat viewings, realizing that he must have intentionally avoided calling Mr. Wilkinson specifically because at this point he wants to convince Virginia that they should keep the house. And that is something that kind of, I'm going to have some interesting thoughts as I go on with that. So I'll table that for now. But the first, uh, as they go into the, as they go into the like living room, the first instance of something strange happens. There's this, what I think is a carpet shampooer that's in the doorway to the living room. That's kind of blocking their path. And Alex says that he 
thought he'd clean up before they got there. And I think it's implied that he forgot to put it away. Um, but I wonder now knowing everything else and knowing the full episode, I wonder if he was covering, Oh, well really (laughs) in my first viewing, I wondered if he was covering for the spirit of the mother and if the, if his mother's spirit was going to be orchestrating things. Um, but it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like I, I'm not sure if it's very clear that it is something that just appears, but it is something that is there. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think it's, it's the first hint of something supernatural and weird going on. Um, and in that case, it is effective at, at kind of easing us into the supernatural thing. Um, so, Then, uh, at that point, I started to wonder if this was going to be, since, since it was presented as something that's, you know, wasn't there before, I was kind of wondering if this was going to be something somewhat similar to Nick of Time in that I thought that it was going to be a story about a husband and wife in a single place in a single location. Um, and that maybe it was going to be about, the the kind of rift between the the husband and wife the husband not being able to move on or look look past what's clouding or influencing his judgment kind of similar to to William Shatner uh being very superstitious and wanting to use the mystic seer uh to his advantage and to get more information rather than just getting up and leaving the diner and leaving the town <laughs> um And it is kind of that, it is sort of that case, but it's a different, it's like an inverted, it's like an inverted case of, of this type of story, because this is about someone who is in terms of like, when I say someone, I mean, Alex, he is someone who is actively regressing and trying to get back to the past. Um, and there's nothing that can be done. So it's kind of a, a, a bleaker version of Nick of time, I think to a certain extent. Um, so here's what I th- thought was really interesting. Again, on uh, repeat viewings, because my first my first inclination of it was that it was going to be uh, just another expression of his grief and everything. But Alex goes to make the call to Mr. Wilkinson, and he conveniently can't find Wilkinson's card. And then Virginia is just very, very happily and, and nicely says like, oh, I'll go ahead and call for for you. Uh, just go ahead and uh, go ahead and start packing and everything. Um, but even before that, he um, or I'm sorry, she Virginia uh, re- recommends that he calls information. He's like, oh, yeah, duh, I get it. Um, and then she's like, OK, hey, you go ahead and do that. Um, you go ahead and pack and I'll call for for you and everything. Um, so. This is really interesting to me because it tells me that Alex is not really like uh, on repeat viewings, of course, it tells me that he's not, he's, he's not just grieving. He's not a grieving guy who is distracted because he's in grief. He is someone who is more calculating um, because in this case, this kind of demonstrates that he's aware of what he's doing and is trying to actively manipulate things into his favor favor his ultimate goal here is to get virginia to agree to stay in the house and to, and to to keep the house um and to not sell the house and it kind of feels like he's just very much calculating in this in this kind of um stall in 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 use of stall tactics and in, in the scene and everything um and the kind of obvious 
rabbit hole to fall down is to say that Alex is gaslighting Virginia. And to be clear, he is, but uh, like, that's exactly what he's doing. But the psychology is even deeper than that, I think. Um, Because Alex is a man whose life has been dominated by his mother's control of him. And I find that to be really, really compelling and very much interesting. So, what I mean by that is is basically what this episode gets so right in the way of manipulation and just overall awfulness that trickles down generations, really, um, is in the way that Alex is Alex is kind of uh, the way that he the way that he behaves throughout this episode is just what this episode gets so right about the way that manipulation and awfulness can trickle down through you. Children and into adulthood. So we don't really know all of this stuff yet, but I'm kind of going through it now. But um, Henrietta had Alex all to herself. She was domineering and disliked Virginia in the notion that Virginia was displanting or not displanting, but supplanting Henrietta's control. So in these types of situations, and I'm going to put my 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 armchair psychologist thing like this. I have no, I have no education in any of this. I just have some experience in some things like this. Um, and just from what I've, what I've seen, but in these types of situations, like the offspring, the child is manipulated into remaining dependent upon their parent. And the parent doesn't want to relinquish control over the child. Who's now an adult over their life. Um, so instead of letting that grown child fly out of the nest, the domineering parent demands that the child cares for them and makes the parent their number one priority. And because of this completely unhealthy, destructive, just disturbing, um, uh, disturbing relationship, the adult child just can't form long-lasting romantic relationships because that overbearing parent will always demand to be number one, whether intentionally or subtly, I don't know. But so in, in a case like this, and what I think this episode gets so right about all of this is that when the child, who in this case is a perennial bachelor, suddenly gets married, his wife isn't the priority that she's supposed to be since the since the mother is still present represented by the house and all of the belongings and everything even in death she's still like number 1 in Alex's mind and this makes it easy and almost second nature for Alex to deceive or manipulate Virginia, like by purposely not calling Wilkinson, by wanting to keep the house against Virginia's wishes, by not wanting to, uh, by just, uh, by delaying moving out, by delaying selling the house, all of that stuff. It's because from his perspective, that will keep his mother or the spirit of his mother happy even with her dead and buried a year ago. And in Alex's head, that idea, the idea that, oh, I need to keep mother happy, supersedes Virginia's desires and overall happiness, which is like, it's, it. I mean, it's kind of just, I mean, again, armchair psychology here, but it's like, it's textbook stuff. It's textbook, textbook, like narcissist behavior and everything. And it's just so interesting how this episode can really hit the nail on the head through all of this, just with a certain subtlety that I think is is just so present throughout it. I like Richard Matheson 
just knocked it out of the park in this episode. Absolutely wonderful writing. And it's also worth noting as I go, went through that whole spiel, spiel, that spiel, I don't know. Um, as I went through that whole spiel, is it spiel? Oh my God. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> as I went through that whole rigmarole, um, it's interesting. No, this episode aired two years after Psycho came out. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. And I think that there's an interesting parallel between Norman Bates' relationship with his mother and Alex's relationship with his mother. It's just, it's really interesting to kind of see these two stories that kind of have some interesting overlap um, be explored in such such quick succession in terms of the overall timeline and everything. So anyway, uh, Virginia offers to call uh, Mr. Wilkinson while Alex while Alex goes upstairs to pack, and she says like they they kind of embrace, and she says that she's so happy to be Mr. to be Mrs. Walker at last after all of these years, and there's this very ominous shot of Henrietta's picture, and Alex staring at it awkwardly, and at this point on my first viewing, I really thought that. He was just mournful of his mother. He was just grieving um, his mother. And I thought that what the episode was doing was showing us that she's still present and that she is still the person, she's she's the malevolent force that's going to um, potentially destroy the marriage and destroy um, the happiness of Alex and Virginia. And I think that that is such a great misdirect because it's just so it's it's such a great misdirect, really. <laughs> um, that was my initial thought, though, that he's grieving. And then uh, taking everything. But th- the actual thought is that um, the actual overall thought is that taking everything else into consideration, it's more that Alex simply doesn't want uh, to replace his mother yet with another Mrs. Walker, which is a whole other can of worms and everything. So as he is about to go upstairs, he stops to try to fix the clock, and then he, uh, he straightens a painting on the stairs. Um, it's showing us that he wants everything in the house to be perfect, and my immediate thought with that is, is he wanting it to be perfect for him or perfect for his mother? Um, and then, again, on my first viewing, I was thinking, is he overcome with nostalgia or grief? Like, what's what's the deal here? But all of this, this whole sequence where he presses there, he messes with the clock, fixes the painting, goes up the stairs. Um, he then turns around and walks back downstairs. And that is all just a very good single take sequence. I thought that was really, really well done because there's this subtlety to the emotion that's in Alex's movements. There's this emotion and conflict that he has that's internalized that, um, that is shown very well throughout the episode. I think it's Alex Nickel is his name. Like, I think he did a very good job of, of performing, uh, of acting in this episode. So, um, so yeah, so then we get, uh, Virginia on the phone saying that, yeah, um, Mr. Wilkinson is going to, uh, be there in a few minutes. And she says like, oh, it's hi, it's Mrs. Lane. I mean, Mrs. Walker. Um, so it's just not, she's not used to referring to herself as Mrs. Walker yet because they literally just got married like a couple of, couple of minutes ago, basically in the timeline, um, or about 20 minutes ago. And then Alex, when, when, uh, Virginia tells him that he, that Mr. Wilkinson will be there in a few minutes, Alex, uh, asks what all they should take out of the house first. And this 
doesn't feel genuine. It just, I mean, not, not that it doesn't feel genuine and feel, it doesn't feel like a genuine thing for him to ask in the character, because what he's really doing is wanting to deflect from the finality of losing everything. So what I mean by, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm not, that's not a criticism of the episode by any stretch. I'm actually complimenting it because Alex asking what they should take out of the house is a means for him to deflect the fact that they need to take everything like they need they need to pack up and leave he is trying to drag it out further because he's not ready um and then he he says like for instance you know the refrigerator and the stove i just bought those a few months and then he stops and then he says before she died and i thought that was interesting because in my head, before we find out that it's been a year, um, in my my thought was that he was going to say a few months ago, and that he was going to be again. I thought that this was going to be an example of him grieving and not being ready to move on, which is what it is. But I thought that it was a more immediate thing, like like kind of like the scene in um, Long Distance Call, which this episode also has some interesting uh, similarities to Long Distance Call, but um similar to the scene in long distance call where the husband is talking about, um, is, is it's after the funeral where he's talking about his mother and her relationship with their son and everything. It's very much from a place of grief and sadness and everything. Um, so I thought that this was going to be the same case here, but it's not, it's him wanting to delay things and everything. Um, and then we start to see his descent into nostalgia and childness, childishness, I guess, um, because he goes over to the radio and my immediate thought was like, okay, is this going to be similar to static because he's living vicariously through the radio and that maybe it's going to be old radio frequencies and everything, but not really that the case or anything, but he tries to turn it on. It doesn't work. And then he just goes into this whole spiel about, uh, how his mother was crazy about a record of the lady in red and how they would watch, they would sit and listen to the radio. And, uh, he even says like a couple of names, uh, major bowls and, uh, someone else, but it's, uh, I'll say, I'll talk about it in trivia, but that is another connection to static really. But, um, and I just lost my place. <laughs> so he, okay, here we go. He, um, he's just talking very, um, very nostalgically about his mother and the radio and everything. And he sees that the radio is broken. He tries to turn it on and it doesn't work. So then he immediately goes to his mother's chair and he starts talking about the chair and about how his mother would, would read, um, would read movie magazines and, and would put, pieces of fudge, uh, for them, uh, which I'll talk about here in a second, but I really like how this moment, this, this run of nostalgia for Alex is almost completely devoid of any other sounds. Like there's no music playing. Um, Virginia isn't interjecting because she's just letting him grieve and letting him express himself. But the show is also making sure that he's completely unaccompanied by music, like it's completely silent, and it really puts this this emphasis on the on the kind of disconnected thoughts that he has, or the the little pauses that he has before, like going from like, oh, you know, we she would read movie magazines and she would do this, um, and I just think that that's really interesting at just showing this the beginning of the descent toward 
from from grief to nostalgia and descent into regression, really. Um, so then he says that, and here's another thing I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm rehashing something I just, I already said, but he says that she used to leave a pan of fudge for them. And I thought that was interesting because my immediate thought was, oh, for them, like, I just immediately thought that he was, that he was saying that she would put a pan of fudge out for him and his siblings, but he doesn't have any siblings. And I think that that's interesting because here when he says like, oh, she used to put a pan of fudge for a pan of fudge out for us. That implies to me that he's talking about him and his siblings. He that he's saying that, oh, she would get a pan of fudge for me and my brother or me and my sister or me and my siblings to eat during during the day and everything. But he's actually talking about him and his mother. And that is just this very subtle kind of uh, subtle reveal or subtle, um, I guess, reveal, yeah, of of the control in the the very just completely un unnatural, really, relationship between between the two of them, the very overbearing relationship that she had over him, um, because it's. Everything that he did throughout his life was a communal activity with his mother. And I just find that so interesting. So Virginia sends him upstairs to pack. Um, and again, I just I just find it so interesting that this whole first act of the story is really, really accentuating and expressing to us, at least in my opinion, that Alex lost his mother recently. Um in that the grief is incredibly powerful and pervasive, but it being a year since her death really colors his, his position and really puts an emphasis on the fact that he can't and is unwilling to move on. And I, I love that. I, I kind of, I, I'm, I ate it all up. Um, like the, like the fudge in the pan, I ate it all up. Um, and when Alex goes upstairs, Virginia, then I can't remember if this is an act break or not, but, um, there's this, this great scene where we finally get like confirmation of what we thought, um, about Henrietta and everything. Because when Alex goes upstairs, Virginia looks directly at Henrietta's picture and she says, he's mine now. You'll never get your claws on him again. And I immediately thought, okay, this is, this is going to be a very interesting story. And I was very much right because, Oh, this was this is a very rich story. So, music starts playing from the radio, which made me think that it was about that it was you know the force of Henrietta's spirit, her ghost, what have you. Um, and I really thought that that was the case, as is dictated by the show. I think uh, that's what was what the show wants us to think, but. It's not Henrietta's ghost. What's happening in this episode is that Alex's desire to regress back to childhood and his reluctance to give up his mother's hold on him, even in death, is causing the house and Henrietta herself to revert back to what it was like in its heyday and 25 years ago. And he's actively willing himself back to a simpler time in his life. And I find that so interesting because the episode has us in the in the perspective in the position of Virginia who is witnessing this 
as it's unfolding. We are not seeing the inner machinations of what's going on because we're not in Alex's head. We're not we're not privy to Henrietta's, you know, spirit or anything. We're experiencing this as Virginia is experiencing it. And I think that that's a very good way to tell the story. So Virginia then turns off the radio and goes into the kitchen. And uh, it very much here we notice that uh, the stove and refrigerator look look the way that they do. And then uh, we'll see later that it'll revert back. Um, but then as she's in the as she's in the kitchen, the music plays again. And so Virginia goes back out to stop it, but it's not coming from the radio. Uh, she th- I thought this was really cool. Um, and I'm so excited to get to this point of the review, but um, she goes upstairs to Alex and the music is revealed to us to have been coming from a record player in the bedroom where he is looking at his old toys and oh my god this was really cool so Alex is sinking into the nostalgia he's reverting back to his childhood and uh like I like at this point in my first viewing, I said, so if there, if he was the perennial bachelor all his life, was that because his mother had her hooks in him and was coddling him and controlling him? And I think that that is absolutely the case because at the end of the episode, the young Alex says that they don't need Virginia. And, uh, I also erroneously, um, (laughs) wondered if, uh, Virginia was going to be his replacement mother. Um, if that was what, uh, he intended to make her out to be, or if that's what the zone had in store for him. Neither one of those were right, um, which I'll get to. But what I find, like, uh, I'm so proud of myself, really, because I, at this point in my first viewing, I said, uh, I put in my notes, also, it's interesting that the radio playing downstairs is the first hint although technically not the first hint of supernatural stuff because the the shampoo or whatever it was was the first inkling of it. But this is the first... The, the radio playing downstairs is the first confirmed supernatural thing to happen because it just comes on on its own. Um, but I found it interesting that that sequence is mimicked, almost immediately mimicked, uh, by Alex playing the record upstairs in giving us and Virginia the thought that, oh, it came back on, something else supernatural is happening and everything. And I'm so happy because in my notes, in that first viewing is is this. I'm just going to read it. I put, that makes me think this is going to be an interesting story where the extraordinary Twilight Zone element of the episode will be equal part supernatural and equal part uh, Alex's hubris. And then I put in another bullet point, I put probably going to be about Alex regressing. And I'm just like, I'm so proud of myself because that's exactly what it is. And I'm so happy that it is because it's a very compelling story and a very rich story as I, as I'm kind of uh, spouting off throughout this, uh, this rambling podcast episode. So, um, in the bedroom, Alex is going through the chest and showing Virginia books and clothes and, it really gives off this energy of a child at show and tell at, at school. And then he has like a, I think they're slacks or something. And he says like, wow, I remember these from a clothing store 25 years ago. And he even remembers the ad. And he says like, I wonder why mother kept them. I wonder why these were so important. And Virginia kind of just loses her cool and says that it's because your mother wanted you to stay exactly how you were 25 years ago. 
And so Alex, uh, who, how dare Virginia badmouth his mother, he gets up and storms into the other room and starts angrily packing. And then Virginia says that, uh, she apologizes. She goes in there, apologizes and says that she'll make him happy and he's not going to be sorry about it. Um, and I just really like in this moment, how, how delicate this relationship seems to be, um, because we later learn that, I mean, they've been together, presumably been together. I think that this is the intention of the dialogue, but they've been together for 12 years. She's waited 12 years to marry this man. And this is still a very rocky relationship that she can say one, one negative thing and everything can be cast aside or, or can be, can be torn asunder uh, to an extent, at least in their communication. And it's also interesting how delicate the relationship is because Henrietta's constant gaze in the photos is just ever present. Like we, even when they're not visible in any shot in, in, in the shot, um, we're still aware that (laughs) Henrietta's photos are all over the place. And that just has this this level of malevolent overbearing spirit in in the house especially because alex isn't willing to move on and that kind of just really hammers that home in in a big way um but also this is this whole scene is even much darker here because Virginia just said something negative about Alex's mother and Alex just shuts down. Like, like I said, he just immediately gets up, goes into the other room and there's no communication or at least there's very poor communication. So it's just, it's so delicate the way that something can cause just a breakdown of communication in this relationship between these two people who were just married an hour ago uh, or thereabouts. So uh, then uh, when Virginia, I think it's when Virginia leaves to go back downstairs or something, Alex tells his mother's picture that he doesn't want to sell the house. And seeing, seeing this scene initially made me think that's really sad because he's, he's hurting, he's grieving, he's mourning the death of his mother. But seeing it again, knowing the ending, knowing the full extent of everything that happened in the, in the episode makes it feel less sad and more just infuriating because there is such an evident lack of responsibility or care from Alex. And that is what's infuriating to me for the character. Like infuri, I'm infuriated with the character by design. I think that it is brilliant storytelling. I love it. Uh, but it's like that character is so, so infuriating to me. (laughs) Uh, so Virginia then walks downstairs and she sees that the clock is working again. Um, and this is where I kind of thought, okay, this is Alex's desire to keep the house is rejuvenating things. Um, his dependence on his mother and her control over him is what's bringing everything back, which is a great note to end the act on because then we get an act break. Um, and then when we come back, there's a buzz at the door. It's Mr. Wilkinson. And that this is something I found really interesting too, is that We've we've gotten a ton of information from Serling in the opening narration, and then we get a ton of um, interaction between Virginia and Alex. And then now, when we're back from com- when we're back from commercial, um, we have a third party person. We have an extra person come into the scene to 
to kind of throw a wrench into things as well. Um, and I find that to be really interesting because Mr. Wilkinson doesn't have much to do in this episode, but he is kind of a catalyst for, um, for a lot of the drama that unfolds later for Alex and Virginia. But, um, it's, it's also really interesting to me because when he knocks on the door or buzzes the doorbell, whichever one it was, um, Virginia looks over and sees that the clock stops entirely. And my initial thought on the first viewing is that Henrietta was trying to trap Alex and Virginia there. Um, but that's not the case. And I honestly, I don't know where I was going with that in my first viewing. But what it actually is, is that the arrival of someone whose sole job it is to sell the house is somewhat scaring off that regression that Alex is triggering. And it is, it is kind of like, it kind of feels like a, um, I, I guess the comparison I would make is that it's like the house is like a, an animal predator that is kind of, I'm picturing like a tiger or something that is, um, very much trying to like, it, it is, um, crouching down and it is slowly making its way, uh, toward its prey. Um, but then hears something and then scurries off or, or jumps back and everything and, and holds back and, and doesn't pursue the prey anymore. Um, so that's what I kind of get the sense of with, uh, Mr. Wilkinson arriving. So Alex comes down and they immediately get down to business. Miss and, and Mr. Wilkinson asks, uh, if he can use the phone first and says that he needs to call his office to let them know where he can be reached for an important call that he's expecting. I feel like that it's a little bit, I mean, it's, a, it's nothing. I don't, I don't know if I doesn't really do anything for me, but it is the catalyst. It is the thing that, that causes Virginia to see the phone has changed to an old style phone, but it also just seems like an extra bit of information that doesn't necessarily need to be there. Although I guess he does need an, a, a reason to call. So I don't know. It just seems a little bit weird. Oh, I'll go ahead and I'll walk that back and say that it is, it is needed because it's showing that he has more pressing matters that that's where, that's how I'll rationalize it, uh, rationalize it, that he's, he's not solely working with Alex and Virginia. He is, he is working with many clients and he's expecting an important call and he is going to, he's like, they need to get the paper signed and get out of there and everything so that they can sell the house. He is pressed for time. So, um, but even if that's not the intention or the case, or you don't want to read too much into it, really what this scene establishes is that Virginia is going to, uh, call the office for him, um, so that they can keep going and keep moving along. But, uh, she sees that the phone is a very old style phone with like the receiver on the cradle. Um, and I don't know if it's a rotary phone or, or what, but it's like, it is, it is a 1930s phone. Um, and it, that's just, that's really cool. Cause like she is kind of shook up over it. She then hears the clock working again. Um, and she sees that, uh, the old phone is there and noticing that she is distracted and distant and everything. Mr. Wilkinson takes it upon himself to use the phone and says like, Oh, it's fine. I'll, you know, I need to tell my, my assistant some things anyway. So, he goes over to use the phone and, uh, the phone just has transformed back into a modern 1960s telephone. And 
Then uh, after he gets off the phone, he says that, oh, yeah, we won't have any trouble selling this house. It's it's going to be it's going to be smooth sailing. And then he asks Alex if things are in order. And Alex gets cold feet and says uh, he wants to know if he can take some time to think things over. And this just really perturbs Mr. Wilkinson. Um, He he says fine and that he'll be in touch after they return from their honeymoon. But he's obviously very much angry. Like he's, he's very annoyed by this. And I found that to be a really interesting detail. Another really interesting detail because it's showing us that, that Mr. Wilkinson is angered by this sudden change of plan and almost change of heart and everything because it's different from other nostalgia stories in the Twilight Zone, in stories where someone disappears into nostalgia. Because Alex's nostalgia and his reluctance to move forward isn't out of reverence for the past, or it isn't even out of regret of the past. It's this self-destructive, selfish desire to hold on to the past and to revert back to the past. So the result is often harmful and or malicious or inconvenient to others um, that is that are trying to do their job or be his spouse. <laughs> and it's it's just really uh, it's really um, interesting. It's an interesting detail to have Wilkinson be uh, flustered by by this change of uh, plan. And so uh, as he's leaving, though, he misaddresses Virginia as Miss Lane before correcting it to Walker, which is another uh, fun thing that's like, okay, it's very fresh that they're, you know, very, very much newlywed, a newlywed couple. So uh, so then when Wilkinson leaves, Virginia and Alex start fighting. And Alex says that he doesn't like the idea of tramping through through the house and and messing with things and everything. And he kind of stutters that out. And Virginia calls him out on it. And I really like this because Virginia is not really he, she's not taking his his excuses. Um, she says that, you know, that's just an excuse. That's not the reason why you don't want to sell the house. And he doubles down that it is. Um, and then she just relents and lets him go back to packing, but he is, he's trying to be firm that, yes, I just don't want, I don't want to sell the house because of, because I don't want people in, in it and everything. And then he just kind of, uh, he, he lightly suggests, he's like, why don't, why don't we just live here instead? And Virginia is not having that. She is, she is very much upset about that. And also just a brief, brief tangent. It reminds me a bit of the scene from the office where, <laughs> um, in the later seasons, uh, like I think the eighth season or maybe ninth season, I don't know. But anyway, when Andy is talking to, um, he's going through a whole crisis with his acapella group from college and he, um, is is trying to get the new the new group to recognize his contributions to the acapella group at Cornell and everything and then he's talking to Aaron and he's like you know i you know i just i miss it and i just i, I want them to know the truth and everything and then he starts he talks himself into the idea of going back and teaching at Cornell and being a part of the acapella group and everything and then Aaron's like no that's not happening and then i just i love i love that because he's just like he's like is this are we doing this? Is this happening? And she's like, no. Um, anyway, so that it reminded, this reminded me of that. But anyway, um, 
Virginia does not, like she's putting her foot down. She says that Alex promised that when Henrietta died, he'd sell the house. And then she says, it's been a year. And that just kind of blew my mind a little bit because I was working under the assumption throughout this entire episode that she had just recently died. Um, and I think that that's such a good, a good way to subvert the viewer's expectations, um, and to really save and, and hold back the severity of Alex's reluctance for a big moment here where Virginia just says like, it's like, I waited a year for you to sell the house and for 12 years before that. And it's just, it's, it's amazing to me because she has the patience of a saint and, like, I take that to mean that she had dated him for 12 years, or maybe she just pursued him for 12 years, and then he finally agreed to marry her when, like, after his mother died. Um, But she says, like, she she tells him that she, now she wants a house of her own, which is totally reasonable. Like, he, she just married the love of her life, and he cannot move on from his, from his mother's control. Um... But all of this falls kind of on deaf ears because she then just says like he's looking at her as if he doesn't even know her. And she says that she loves him and she wants to take care of him and make a home for him. And then she says, but our home, not hers, which I thought was really great because it's just showing it's bringing back that idea that she is in competition with Henrietta. She is competing for this man's affection against his mother's wishes and spirit and everything. And it's such an uphill battle that she ultimately loses, but it's ultimately just, just so, uh, twisted and and crazy. So, and then she starts to say, and this this I thought was another great way to really exemplify the sense of control that uh, that Henrietta had over Alex because Virginia says that they've waited so long and that she knows she says I know that you told me she was sick and immediately after that like she doesn't even finish the thought really Alex cuts her off in an attempt to defend his mother and defend his actions by saying like, she was sick, she was sick. And I thought that was a a very nice, subtle way of telling us how manipulative and controlling Henrietta was. And maybe this is, <laughs> this could ab- absolutely, I'm, I'm not going to go into specifics, but this could absolutely be me projecting a little bit. I am fully aware of that. But I felt like it was a nice, uh, subtle way of sh- telling us how manipulative and controlling she was. Because Alex goes on to say that she lost her health taking care of me in this house for 20 years. And when he says that, I swear, it's almost like I can hear Henrietta saying these words to him throughout his life, throwing that up against him anytime he ventured out of the house or ventured out of her control. Like, I could hear this domineering parent say, oh, I, you know, I sacrificed my health taking care of you in this house for 20 years. So the least you can do is eat my fudge and eat my fudge and listen to my radio, um, with me and not have a life of your own. So I just think that that's so, uh, so indicative of a certain type of, um, personality. (laughs) I'll say that as diplomatically as I can. Um, 
And then Alex kind of doubles down on all that and goes into further detail saying that he was all that his mother had because his father left when Alex was two months old. He abandoned them and and because of that, she's all that he had or he's all that she had. And Alex then says he's not going to sell the house. They're going to remodel it and maybe get some new furniture. I don't know. But then Virginia just puts her foot down even firmer and says, no, she's not going to let that happen. And then that's when the clock starts up again. And I found that to be so interesting because it's like the, it's like the, the, um, the house and whatever force is driving this, this regression that Alex is, is pushing through. Um, it's like it's taunting her by having the clock start up as soon as she's putting this very firm, statement out into the air that no i'm not gonna let that happen and then the clock starts up to taunt her it's crazy um i love it i love it to be clear i just absolutely love it so she's completely spooked by the clock and decides they're gonna get out of there and that's a very smart move smart move um she recognizes uh because i feel like she's recognizing that the house has this particular effect on Alex just by being in it. So if she can get him out of the house in a way, they'll be fine. So she walks into the living room to get her purse to get out of there. And she bumps into the vacuum cleaner that wasn't there before. She sees the old phone again. Everything is kind of coming up and, and being this very, uh, the, the force is showing itself and being very felt and threatening, uh, to Virginia. And Virginia just looks at, Henrietta's photo again and uh says like you you're not going to win you're not I'm not going to let you take him over. So then she turns around and Virginia sees the movie magazine that wasn't there. Then she sees the plate of fudge by the radio. So the house is really going into it's uh bringing itself further back to 25 years ago. So, and then this is another great, just small detail because Virginia runs into the kitchen for her purse and she sees the appliances. There's a different refrigerator, a different stove. I think it's more of a cabinet. I don't know. And she's shocked and she runs back out of there in, in a panic. Um, and then this is where <laughs> it just, I loved this ending because Virginia then runs to the stairs and she calls for Alex and in this moment, for the brief second, I really thought she was going to see the child form of Alex at the top of the stairs. But no, it's Henrietta. And in this moment, I was still thinking, okay, Henrietta is the villain. Henrietta is the ghost that is keeping Alex all for herself because that's what the show has demonstrated to us, has told us to expect. So I'm thinking, oh my God, there's going to be this huge confrontation. And Virginia goes into this whole spiel saying that Henrietta can have him. She won't let her have him. And then <laughs> Henrietta, all she does is shakes her head no. So Virginia then gives an impassioned speech saying that I'm right for him. I won't try to destroy him like you did. My love will make him strong, not weak, not dependent. And then she says that Henrietta's hate isn't strong enough and her desire to dominate isn't strong enough. And then Henrietta says her single line in this episode, and it is glorious. It is awesome. It is just awesome because all she says is, this is not my doing. It is such a great twist because then we see Alex exiting the room and then Alex sees Henrietta. He puts his hand out and says, come back to me, mother. I want you to. 
And Virginia just cries and screams and uh, not really screams, but she shouts, Alex, not you. And there's just this overwhelming sense of betrayal in this moment. And then it cuts back to Alex and we see that his regression back to a child is complete. He is just the child version of himself with his mother walking into the bedroom. And all I think is this is really, really cool. And then we get the 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 final moment that is just uh, it is it's heartbreaking for virginia really because child alex looks over at virginia and says go away lady we don't need you anymore and then virginia runs runs down the stairs in tears runs out of the house and then we get serling's closing narration which i will play right now exit miss virginia lane formally and most briefly mrs alex walker she has just given up a battle and in a strange way retreated. But this has been a retreat back to reality. Her opponent, Alex Walker, will now and forever hold a line that exists in the past. He has put a claim on a moment in time and is not about to relinquish it. Such things do happen in the Twilight Zone. So if you'll allow me a quick, dumb internet meme, memeified summation for this episode, um, this is, this is really lame, but my, my kind of single sentence summation of this episode is men will regress back into their childhood and relive their life with their mother instead of going to therapy. (laughs) Um, and so really my, my real true summation of the episode is that this is such a rich, detailed episode on a personal level in a very subtle level as well. It presents this overbearing mother as a villain before completely pulling the rug out from underneath us slowly because we're revealed later or it's about midway through the episode or really two thirds of the way through the episode. It's revealed that the mother's death is a year is a year in the past and the actual um, it, it, the nostalgia, the reluctance is not born from grief, but it's born out of just a decision to regress back to and, and not abandon his childhood and everything. Um, so while Henrietta is a villain and is, um, is a villain to this relationship and to the, to the Alex character and to Virginia. Um, and the sense of control is the catalyst for Alex's regression itself. This episode smartly lays that final choice on Alex. And it's a shame that it's something that isn't that, that Virginia does not win. She is someone who, um, loses out and, and loses the man that she loves because it's not because her love is not strong enough for him. It's because his desire to not grow up is, is way too overpowering. And she has, this is, this is like the biggest, I dodged a bullet episode of the twilight zone that I've seen. Um, it's, it's really great. It's really fantastic. So I really, really enjoyed this episode. Um, which is interesting because I don't think I've really heard much people talk about it. So I don't know what, people feel about this episode overall. Um, let me know what you thought of the episode. Of course, um, reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. You can also, I don't really broadcast this that all that much, but you can email me obsessiveviewer at gmail.com or matt at obsessiveviewer.com. But anyway, 
that's my review of Young Man's Fancy. Really, really enjoyed this episode. And I have a little bit of trivia for the episode, so uh, I'll just run through them. Um, the opening shot showing the home outside is reused in the very next episode, we'll see. I Sing the Body Electric. And this is one of 16 of the total 156 episodes of The Twilight Zone that involve the appearance of a ghost, which I thought was an interesting detail to have in trivia. I don't know. Um, apparently, the carpeting on the steps have a design that look intentionally intentionally like ladies' eyes. And another piece of trivia that I thought was interesting was that the original title for the script when it was submitted by Richard Matheson was the house, which I think would have been, that would have made that twist at the end even more shattering for me because I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been expecting it to have anything to do with, you know, youth of, of Alex or anything. Um, and also, um, as I read in, in unlocking the door to a television classic, the original script had a different and kind of extended ending. So after young Alex tells Virginia to go away in that original ending, the door closes and Virginia screams. She then runs up to the door, opens it and gasps. And then the camera spins around to show us that the room looks like it was in the 1930s, but there's this shimmering haze that fades away until the 1961 version of the room is in focus without Alex or Henrietta anywhere to be found. And really, honestly, I wish that they would have had this ending. They would have used this ending because I think it would have sewn everything up really well. It would have left us with the complete disappearance of Alex into the past. It, it would have been something that would have been more final and a sense of finality to it. Um, but I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't dislike the actual ending that aired, but I do wish that they would have kept this ending. So, um, the other piece of trivia I have about this episode is that when Alex mentions the radio, he mentions listening to Major Bowes and Fred Allen, uh, which was an intentional inside joke reference to Charles Beaumont's season two episode, Static. Um, and the final piece of trivia is that, according to Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, uh, Richard Matheson liked the finished episode. However, he felt that Henrietta should have looked scarier at the end since she was a ghost. Which I can understand. I, I get that. Um, it probably would have been kind of cool to show her as an apparition, and then when Alex calls to her, she becomes like, a like, uh, you know, a person, like a, a human person again. But you know, I I don't know. Uh, this is this has been so long in the past. I don't think I don't think anyone will change that for me. Um, I don't know. That's dumb. Anyway, so that is my review of Young Man's Fancy. Um, really, really enjoyed this episode. And yeah, I let me know what you thought of it. And then now to round out this episode of Anthology, I'm going to share my thoughts on the season two premiere of Science Fiction Theater. And to bring us into that, I am going to play the theme song for Science Fiction Theater. And 
today's episode of Science Fiction Theater is the Season 2 premiere titled Signals from the Heart, which is available to view on the internet on Dailymotion.com. It originally aired on April 6, 1956, and the synopsis for single for singles for Signals from the Heart is a doctor is blamed for a train wreck that killed two dozen people because he had just certified the engineer who had suffered a fatal heart attack right before the crash as fit for duty. To make up for the damage to his reputation, the doctor now hopes to develop a new cardiogram that will detect heart attacks from a distance. And the uh, director for this episode was Herbert L. Strock. Writer for the episode was Stuart Jerome, writing a screenplay based on a story by Ivan Tours. Or Ivan Tours had a story by credit, I should say. Uh, this episode stars Peter Hansen as Dr. Warren Stark. This is his second of six science fiction theater episodes. He also appeared in one episode of The Outer Limits, the season two episode, The Brain of Colonel Barham. And he also appeared in 1951's When Worlds Collide. And then co-starring as Professor Tuber is Walter Kingsford. This is his fourth of six science fiction theaters. And uh, as Alma Stark is Joyce Holden, her second of two science fiction theaters. And then rounding out the cast is Gene Roth as Patrolman Tom Horton. This is his first of three science fiction theaters. And he did have one appearance on The Twilight Zone in season two's uh, brilliant time loop episodes, Shadow Play. Uh, he played the judge in that episode. So after taking some time off from watching science fiction theater, I'm back at it and I am excited. Um, I was curious to see how season two was going to look and as expected, it's in black and white. Um, for season two, they, I guess to save money, they went to black and white photography. Um, and it's fine. Like it doesn't, it doesn't hinder it at all at all. Really. It's still the same format. Uh, Truman Bradley comes on and does a demonstration and introduces the, um, introduces the episode. And, uh, in this one, he is in a lab of, in a lab, of course, and he kind of talks about how we're living in the age of electronics and he shows a video of a rocket, like lifting off. And then he shows an automated typewriter and then he shows this electric mouse in a maze and he shows a small piece of electric machinery and talks about how, um, it can be used for medicine and, or the medical fields. I, I don't remember to be honest, but then he brings us into the episode and, this episode overall was pretty solid. It was okay. Um, there's some interesting stuff that happens in it. Um, so they are discussing, it starts with the doctor discussing with a patient, um, the echo, uh, the electrocardiogram and saying that, yeah, you look good. Everything's good. Um, uh, but the, the cop who he's examining says that he has indigestion after, um, after his heart examination and the doctor is like, well, everything looks good on, on it. So, you know, we can't really, we can't really account for what's happening, you know, at any given time or anything, just when you're being examined and everything. So then the next day there's a train accident and I thought that was a really good, uh, production value. I, I assume that it's some kind of stock footage and that's horrifying if it is, because I don't know like what the, if there was any injuries in that stock footage, but there's just this huge train accident derailment on it. And then we find out that the engineer of the train was a patient of Dr. Starks who died of a heart attack. And as the plot summary says, he was cleared for it. He was cleared for, for going to work, um, 
following, you know, uh, an electrocardiogram by Dr. Stark. So what I found interesting about this is that the, they try to pin charges on the doctor and basically everything like the fallout of this is that his practice is destroyed and he and his wife are leaving town. There's no criminal charges, but he's leaving town. And so then he starts working with a professor about the idea of having a constant real time modern mon, uh, monitoring of heart rates. And so they, they go into this, they go into this, they, um, he and he and the professor workshop this and try to find um try to find a human you know guinea pig for it and sure enough the cop comes back and they do this like they have this constant monitoring thing and what i really appreciate about this about this episode is that it actually has like an interesting um like foot pursuit action sequence like there's it's a pretty well choreographed sequence um the cop is walking his beat he finds um, someone who's just held up a shop, I think, and a, ch- and a chase ensues and like there's, there's climbing fences and everything. It's, it's really effective choreography for the time. Um, and then I won't give away what happens at the end, but, um, suffice it to say there is, um, there are developments that happen. <laughs> um, and it's really, it's, it's a good, it's a good solid episode with it, with some good, solid, um, action thrown in, uh, surprising, surprising, uh, surprisingly enough. Um, this is another one of those episodes that isn't, that isn't taking a fantastical scientific discovery or fantastic, uh, scientific idea and sciencing, sciencing it out. But it is something that is really interesting as, as a, as an, as a showcase of what medical science at the time could be, could become, could have. And I really like that type of story for this. And obviously, you know, medical science has, has, has advanced quite a bit since 1956, but seeing it now, it's just, it's really interesting to see this optimism for the future and this, this hopeful, hopefulness to, of the future, because usually in science fiction that I've consumed of the era, it's always like, oh, you know, we're going to have a man on the moon. We're going to have, we're going to have a complete, um, a moon station and we're going to conquer the universe and everything. But here, this is just a very, very ground level sort of, um, a very ground level kind of like straightforward, uh, ex- exploration of, potential future medical science breakthroughs and everything. And I I thought it was really well done, handled very well. Um, and I I enjoyed it. It's a good start to season two. Um, we'll see what the rest of the season brings, but as far as trivia for signals from the heart, um, on IMDb, there's a piece of trivia, um, that I'll just read from my notes. It's, uh, in 1949, Dr. Norman J. Holter developed a backpack ECG that transmitted the results by radio. Although it originally weighed 78 pounds or 75 pounds, that weight was eventually reduced. Today, telemetrics ECGs are so common, community colleges offer courses for the job of ECG telemetry monitor. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. Um, so yeah, so that's Signals from the Heart, and that's episode 98 of Anthology, and the first episode of Anthology in 2023. Um, thank you guys once again for supporting the show all these years, and 
throughout 2022. I'm very uh, excited to finish up season three of The Twilight Zone and jump right into season four of The Twilight Zone, the much maligned season four of The Twilight Zone. Um, in 2023, I'm gonna have some. Uh, I'm gonna have some bonus episode series. I'm gonna do a lot of Patreon stuff that's supplemental to this podcast throughout 2023. So check out, uh, check out, uh, Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Um, very excited for 2023 with podcasting and, uh, next time on the show, I, in episode 99 of anthology, I'm going to be reviewing the twilight zones 100th episode I Sing the Body Electric, uh, written by Ray Bradbury. It is The Twilight Zone Season 3, Episode 35, and I'm going to uh, conclude that episode with a brief review of Season 2, Episode 2 of Science Fiction Theater, The Long Sleep. So look forward to that. Hopefully I'll be able to get that out next week, but Patreon should have early access to that whenever I do complete it, so check out patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. And once again, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you guys so much for supporting us. Happy New Year. Happy Twilight Zone Marathon um, and everything. Looking forward to 2023. And uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode. And now enjoy this short clip from our Patreon exclusive RSS feed. For the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, such as early access to episodes, TV, book, and movie reviews and reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and Patreon poopery episodes, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. But it's just so interesting to me because when you think about it, like, it is one human being in a very small pod looking at this giant piece of machinery this this piece of engineering this giant ship that its sole occupant is its sole like living thing is an ai and is a a program that is running the entire thing and i think that 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 tells just such an interesting thing about i don't know what it's about i don't know if it's about technology versus humans like our reluctance or our dependence rather on uh, on technology and it being like the fact that Hal is Hal is doing this out of self-preservation and Dave's reactions to all of this is very methodical like okay we need to I'm I'm, I'm going to shut you down I'm going to go into the go into the emergency airlock and then I'm This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com you can find links to all of our shows at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.